You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Sean Vance. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Bennett here, the Nordics Managing Director here at Evolution. I really hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today I'm joined by Mark, Morton, Bignesh and Jakob to discuss data platform evolution. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Mark, do you want to start things off? Sure. Yeah. Hey, hey everyone. My name is Mark. I am a data engineer in Confus and I have been that for five years. And I, yeah, build our cloud data platform. Great. Morten? Yeah. Thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Morten and I'm a lead data scientist in Novo Nordisk. Been there for two years and currently I'm building a data hub for the quality part of the organization. Perfect. And Vignesh, welcome back. <laughs> it's good to be back. Thank you for having us. Uh, my name is Vignesh and I'm a lead data architect at Hybrid Green Tech, where we work with uh, energy storage and we use a modern data stack to uh, collect and store data across a lot of different energy storage assets. Okay. Uh, finally, Jakob. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jakob Tomasen, specialist at Delegate, which is a Microsoft consultancy company. And, um, my area of expertise is within the, the data platform as well and analytical solutions. And I spend most of my days working on uh, designing solutions and talking to customers, doing a little bit of sales and a lot of sparring with my colleagues. Perfect. Welcome, everyone. Um, so now that we have established a context to each of you, let's move on to our topic in focus. So you all have questions based around data platform evolution. And as usual, I'll work our way around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. Each of, the, each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Okay, so first of all, we will come to you, Jakob, and you've asked, to what extent is it possible to utilize low-code ETL in an enterprise context? Can you explain a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah, low-code or no-code for that matter, it's been, uh, it's, it's starting to be everywhere. Also, of course, in in the data field. And as I see it, it has the advantage of uh, being able to be implemented by non-developers or citizen developers. And those people or profiles, they typically have a better insights in the business compared to the classic developer type or data engineer. But just uh, what are your takes on the cost or like in areas such as uh, quality and testability that you may have to, um, is that that won't be as high as when you do classic uh, DevOps, uh, CICD, and uh, test-driven development. Okay, let's see. Morton, do you want to go ahead with this one? Sure, yeah. So one thought I had, uh, I have on this topic is how it's it's a little bit related to how Excel uh, transformed the way analytics and um, what can you call it, finance, all of these things many years ago now. 
that before you had Excel, it was very difficult for uh, most people, especially non-programmers, to do any sort of automation or calculations. You know, you probably have to do those manually with like a, a, a tabletop calculator, something like that. Um, but now you had Excel, which suddenly allowed you to do all sorts of things. Um, and it's sort of the, the same thing with, with low-code solutions, right? That before uh, there was a limit to how much automation you could really do, and now you can do a lot more. So that's not that's not an answer to the question, really. But maybe we can be inspired by some of the same um, some of some of the same issues and advantages that we have with Excel, where the obvious advantage is that uh, subject matter experts in the business can create a lot of value with Excel because the code and the business understanding are so close to each other. And that's really, to me, where the the, the most value is created. So that's really the, the advantage of that approach. And obviously, as you also say, Jacob, that uh, there's some issues regarding quality and testability. And I think we all know when you have Excel workbooks that grow too much, they become too big. They become uh, tangled spaghetti things that nobody really understands. And obviously, there's these stories about uh, big finance companies losing a lot of billions of dollars because they're their risk analysis was done in Excel. So that's obviously a trade-off. Um, still, I don't think I've really answered the question, but I think at least that that's, we can draw some parallels. And um, if, if somebody has a good way to handle structure Excel, maybe we can use some of those same methods for, um, for low-code solutions. Yeah. Yeah, I think seen from my side, low-code, no-code ETL tooling, that uh, there are quite a few out there. I don't see them as going in and replacing data engineers as such, but it gives a platform where the data engineer can more closely collaborate with the different different business specialists, whatever area this data comes from, so that they can share an environment that actually co-create and co-develop their end solution, co-develop the transformations, co-create the connections to the individual data assets that needs to be extracted for transformation and load to another solution. So I think many of these local no-code solutions is not as such going to change who is doing it, but it's going to give a better ecosystem for cross-collaboration in companies. I think I, I agree with you, Mark, in terms of enabling a data engineer and a data analyst or a data scientist to sit together and just figure out what the data model should be and co-create it, as you say. And also, it, it supports the increased velocity, right? that you can actually put two people with uh, having opposite uh, skill set to sit together and just quickly draw up the uh, pipeline and have it available for consumption pretty fast. So I think it's, it's it won't replace the people involved, but it does pro- facilitate that that sort of a new platform where you can work on. Yeah, and, and I guess Logger seem to be fairly well integrated with standard version control, like Git testing is maybe a bit of a different matter, but with an elaborate test drive, you can even test your low-code, no-code setups. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think, Jakob? Do you agree with these guys? Totally. Totally. Uh, great observations. Uh, what what we... Well, it's... Uh, when you add the analytical part on top, what we see is typically the matter of, so how far down can this uh, self-service BI paradigm be pushed? Can they just do the reporting? Can they do the data modeling? And... Can they even move down in the data platform and do the transformations as, as, as we're talking about? And in smaller companies, that might make sense. But 
in larger enterprises, it's just uh, we haven't found the perfect match, uh, mix and match. Even though, as as you mentioned, uh, Vignesh, they can co-create uh, pipelines. Uh, but yeah, so we we are certainly oh, sorry, Mark, as well. we we are certainly working on this. Which level can we go to in terms of self-service? And I guess it also has to do with the like overall data literacy and and, and data strategy in the company because. As with any kind of software development in in data reuse is key to actually scale. So therefore, you need to of course have a, a data literacy level in your company that what you build can actually also scale and be reused if you want to push it all the way down into the data platform stack. Yeah, I I, I guess I I agree that having an ETL tool could complicate the data literacy part because if you have too much data too soon. Uh, it becomes a converse problem where you're like, you don't really know where everything's stored and data catalogs and all other additional things come on top. So you can actually find relevant pieces of data that everybody could use. Um, so I do agree that Jakob's observation that like, yeah, it takes, it, do, it would take a couple of extra steps to figure out what a larger enterprise would need for a self-service system uh, compared to a small slash medium size organization. Martin, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that point? I just It's sort of an obvious uh, observation, but so especially in an enterprise, one thing that's really challenging is, so when you calculate, for instance, a metric on something, um, the further down into the business layer you push that, the more different ways you have of calculating that metric, essentially. So if you have one part of the organization and they think that they calculate the metric in one way, you have a lot of other parallel parts of the organization that calculate in a different way. So sometimes it's nice to have like a bottleneck, a centralized place uh, where the transformations are defined, because that means that the end users are going to be consumers of that same transformation instead of uh, inventing it on their own. Um, that's not really specific to ETL, but at least in the sense that ETL gives you the possibility to calculate transformations very locally, then that's an issue that you have to consider. Okay, great. Should we go back to you, Jakob? Was there anything else you wanted to, to ask based on this question? All good. All good. Okay, we'll move on then. So I'll come to you next, Mark. And you have asked, how do companies organize around building modern data platforms? And how do companies ensure that the team owning the platform has the flexibility and mandate to build a scalable platform? Can you elaborate a little bit for us? Yes. So, so this is more about who should be involved in the process of defining what what data platform should you build as a company and who should actually be the parts who take action upon these decisions in the end. Because if you go to a finance team, you would most likely get radically different answers than if you go to IT or if you go to sales or any kind of productive part of, of the organization where they actually produce an end product. Okay, Vignesh, we'll come to you first. Oh, this, the role of who goes first in, or who has the deciding factor on uh, designing, designing such uh, platforms is a hard one to answer. Uh, I guess one option would be like going from a business unit first in terms of figuring out what requirements and downstream requirements are needed uh, and build out a platform specific to a business unit, um, which I guess is called uh, spoken hub model as uh, they would call it in data architectures. Um, but there are also like possibilities of using uh, data mesh where you have a singular platform that you kind of share within the organization. But they have like 
different uh, car benefits and disadvantages because then you need to have a team which is capable of understanding how to transfer the technical knowledge on to different uh, stakeholders and different business units. So it becomes a pretty quick, it, it, it can lead to chaos pretty quickly. Um, yeah, but but the reason why I'm asking is that this is most likely where most companies will start their journey if they don't have a, a lot of, of shadow IT pre-existing. Yeah, uh, what I typically see is that the the, the centralized data platform is, is anchored in IT or a similar division. So what would be called BICC back in the days or center of excellence now. And 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 the problem is that uh, the, the IT people, they don't necessarily focus on value creation. That's not a natural part of what the way they think. They think about all kinds of other things that should be thought of, of course, regarding monitoring, security, compliance, and cost management, whatever whatever comes to mind. But, um, but what we, we try to address uh, when we come as consultants is we want to focus on value creation. So because the data platform in itself does not create any value. So we ideally start out with like a, a data strategy that maps um, your all your future use cases and you align your data strategy with your business strategy and, and that with the hidden agenda that you get management on board. And when they realize that what we're trying to build here is is, is something they, they need to like, uh, it's, it's going to be a core to survive and grow for the future because of course everyone wants to be data driven these days it's not just a reporting tool or something then then the mandate comes along and um, and we can start pulling in relevant business people and this this output of the data strategy has like the added benefit of looking time uh, fairly long timeliness out in the future so you can try to address those use cases um, in the initial platform you create so you don't just pull up one the first uh, uh, platform that comes to mind when uh, addressing the first use case. Um, yeah. And then things like scalability, that's, I think it's uh, compared to back in the days where you had a lot of problems with scalability, just now that if, if you select one of them, uh, a technology, of course, where you've separated storage and compute, then you're, you're you're pretty good to go in in our use cases anyway. Um, so, yeah, a little bit of a ramble there. It but was more than scalability of the the action. Ah, okay. Of course. It, so so most, most cloud technologies at least support scalability. Agree. To any degree. Totally agree. So it's more in terms of actually figuring out how to, to manage the team in the end because building a data platform can become quite a large task. So so managing the backlog, managing actually all the different requirements coming in from any kind of business unit or even IT itself for delivering certain parts towards building a shared data ecosystem. Yep. Well, then oh, if I can, yeah. if I can pitch in with my uh, sort of a data science perspective, then maybe I can also uh, say some things, mention some things that, that probably don't work. Um, so in data science projects, sometimes what you do is uh, you start out by deciding not to have a data platform at all. Um, and then if you, if you do build a data platform, then you have data scientists building the data platform. And both of those are not not great solutions, I would say, um, because getting the data, transforming it, cleaning it, impact, importing the the business rules, uh, that that's a big part of a data science solution. Um, and I think there's a lot of hype around uh, AI and data science, but there's there's not necessarily the same amount of hype uh, around the data platform. So usually, what I've seen is that uh, management want a smart new solution 
to some problem. So they start from like the data science part of it, and then they work backwards, like who, what people do we hire? And so they hire data scientists. So that's like, you should probably, you need somebody competent to build uh, the platform part of it. So uh, Jacob, you mentioned the, the scalability part of it, um, which I think is important and coming from the data science side, something you can do is to start small with anything really just proof of concept show that this can be done um, and learn about what works and what doesn't and then as you mentioned the hub and spoke model which i think is also like could be the end goal for those architectures that you start small with one of the spokes something like that and figure out what works then gradually you move the share functionality to the hub such that in the end, you have a lot of spokes where you don't have to reinvent the wheel a lot of the time, but you can use technology from from the hub. Um, and st- so that's sort of the, yeah. So I think that answers like the anchoring part of the question where I, I think it's so hard to get the data platform right. So if you anchor that part in, so now I want to say IT, but in some part of the organization that has a lot of competence and then you have spokes in the business units to actually handle the uh, specific data domains. That's that's certainly one way to do it. And then start small and build up from there. Yeah, Mark, think, what do you think of that? I think it's all very interesting perspectives to it. And, and I I don't think that there is one right answer seen from my perspective, at least. But there there's certainly a lot of things to think of, as all of you actually mentioned. And I think this entire notion of, of starting from the outside in is a, is a very interesting perspective to it because I guess, yeah, either, either you get into the, the troublesome situ- situation that you have multiple platforms lying around or you have one central project that starts out the, the initiation of the project, which tend to then cause cause you to go in the other direction and builds from, from inside out. So, it's, yeah, it's quite an interesting discussion, at least seen from my side. Yeah. Vignesh, did you have something else that you wanted to add to the topic? Uh, no, I, I just wanted to agree with what Martin said about starting off with a, with a platform or at least like um, having the engineering principles anchored in first, to then bringing on data scientists. Of course, this there are some cases in which you might have a lot of data pre-existing where you want to bring in a data scientist and figure out what is potentially possible. Uh, in that case, it's it's obviously you start off with what is the potential of the data you have and then try to figure out how do you create the compute and the storage required for enabling that as a continuous and a recurring process as a data scientist would want to have. Um, then if you're creating from something from the ground up uh, where you don't have pre-existing data, starting off with identifying the business goals is what Jakob said and figuring out where the strategy leads you and enabling the platform builders to create something that is flexible enough to do that would be uh, would be a starting point or, or, or principle you can anchor yourself in. But as the company expands, all guesses go out the window because then it becomes a cultural and everything else where you end up at, I guess. But a spoken hub model is something you would want to go at, as Martin said, would might end up supporting different use cases with a singular platform. So I have a follow-up question to you guys, if, if you'll indulge me. Um, so it's a little bit related to what I said before about data science versus data engineering. Um, I think there's like a, a deceptive thing about doing analytics, both BI and data science really, which is that um, it's once you have any data, you can just assume uh, that that data is 
correct and that it's clean and you know the business logic there's nothing stopping you from making that assumption and if you don't know uh, the business logic if you don't know the business side of things you just want to get going with some code and some models and some graphs really um you don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time cleaning the data whereas if you do if you think about like traditional software development with a back end and a front end you you pretty quickly realize when there's something not working in the solution right you click a button nothing happens you get an error you get a stack trace whatever so it's obvious if the thing you're building is not working as intended so do you also have the experience that in let's say bi analytics data science that there's a lot of focus on getting some numbers out getting some analysis done getting some graphs rather than the correctness of the data and the analysis uh, and and a true appreciation for how i want to say expensive now but how many what many resources it actually takes to make sure that that data is correct it's it's a you know it's a big endeavor to create a data platform that you can actually trust do you have sort of the same experience of what do you think about this i think it depends uh, a lot on the uh, the actual use case but in some cases it's uh, it's not the the of course if it's in binance the, the numbers must be spot on but in other areas it's actually you it's okay if, if the numbers just uh, correlate with what you're trying to uh, to prove or you're trying to uh, investigate but in general of course yeah I totally agree that uh, people are eager to to get some to try to be data driven and get the data across the board uh, and that adds me to leads me to the spoken hub model if you can address that with um, like proving or tagging your data with metadata so you can see is this actually approved by the central IT or whatever that that adds a level of uh, level on top that you can uh, in this way you can uh, bring all the way out to the report so the end user knows that this is actually not necessarily 100% correct. Yeah, I think think the entire notion of of data trust is something that any company who strive to be data literate and actually want to be data driven in the end they need to address how is data trust perceived? Do we actually even trust the data coming from our source systems in the first place? That's not always the case. So so there are a bunch of different approaches to that. One of them could be building a data catalog where you have a list of your data, where does it come from? Was the lineage all of this thing? But again, it, it all, all points down to the business should actually also be part of the responsible tool, tool chain for this. The people who knows most about our sales digits would typically be the guy, guys in sales. They should be the one describing these data and how to use them properly rather than someone in finance thinking that they can they can guess what these numbers mean. And in a lot of source systems, things are not necessarily named logically. So that just adds an extra layer of complexity to it. They're rarely named, uh, obviously, I would say. <laughs> they are rarely logically. Vignesh, did you have anything to add on that question? Oh, I think uh, Jakob and Mark summed it up pretty nicely on uh, the, the topic. I don't think I have anything else to add on it. No, no worries. Well, we're coming to you next anyway, Vignesh. Um, and you've asked, with the new large language models, how do you expect analytics and the data infrastructure to change? So do you want to add to that for us, Vignesh? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of looking at now and kind of the future and kind of ties in with the first question, which we discussed about the low code and no code solutions. Large language models at the current iteration do 
support some amount of no-code philosophy or, or just chat with something and create something philosophy. What is your take on this development and where this cha- how it changes uh, data going forward? Okay. Morton, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think what in, immediately popped out at me also related to the no-code uh, discussion is that um, this this idea of co-creation between the subject matter experts and the ICP law data engineers. And like it, it gets very concrete in this case, I think, where suppose you have chat GPT and some subject matter expert and they want to encode some business logic in their uh, data platform. You would essentially be able to just write um, the business logic in human language and then ask uh, chat GPT to to transform that into some sort of SQL or code or whatever. And that doesn't work in itself in isolation, obviously, because it might be wrong. But then you could go to the data engineer and you would have a very different starting point for, for a discussion with the data engineer than if you just showed up with your knowledge that you might have written down. Um, so that's sort of co-creation that we already discussed a little bit. I think that that could be pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I certainly see that this is something that could support this entire notion of giving a better documentation of requirements in the first place. But I think if we just look at everything besides the security part, that's a, a chapter in and of its own. But even if we could just get as a, a data engineers and actually developing a data platform, a pretty rigid definition of what is it that business wants, we would be off in a better place. But it might be a very good exercise for business to actually try to, to bounce it against uh, something like chat GPT. See if it comes up with something that just resembles meaningful in the first place. I think the the idea of that I would I would like to see that in the future. But I think also there is still some maturity level that needs to go into these lo- common large language models, where we actually have an kind of an enterprise grade version of it deployed somewhere that can be used in one of the hyperscalers or any other cloud environment, rather than these more freeware versions of tooling. Yeah. Jakob, what do you think? I agree with what uh, Morten and Mark have said so far. And I, I also see this as it's an off-the-shelf service, uh, for instance, in Azure OpenAI. So it's basically just calling an API. So now we, it's just a matter of how can we plug this into our our yeah existing platforms uh, and, and see if how we can add value. So I know it's not the what your question was addressing regarding the low code, but I'm also very interested in seeing how we can use this uh, out of the box service to uh, to improve processes out uh, for our customers as well. Yeah, I guess one one very fast adoption that that any kind of of development environment actually could take was just code suggestion derived from what you have already done in your whatever low code no code environment. If the your development tool can actually start actively suggesting, like we have seen with any kind of IDE that can help you find the right names for your variables, your right function calls, and so forth, that might help. That might accelerate us. It, it's kind of funny uh, because today we we played around with this little demo someone somebody had created on uh, GitHub. Which went like, just ask a question and it'll create a SQL query for you. And of course, this is early stages. It's like uh, a month in and there are new models coming out. And just having that piece of re- ask me something in a normal language and I'll create a technical query for you changes how you could uh, include non technical people into the conversation and help them give them access to the data. That was, that was really interesting to see it already there. 
right? There are already some BI tools out there who have adopted this approach to actually get, getting access to data to the more business-oriented people so you, that you can actually upload your metadata model of how your data is structured. And then based on that, you can ask questions in a Google-like manner. So, but I think these large language models are just going to improve upon the concept and make it even more user-friendly in the future. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's maybe also a potential for, suppose you, your management and you have like a BI team and when you want to know something about your business, you go to the BI team, then some of those people might have the bright idea to just ask the model, ask the LLM instead. Like there's probably got to be some way to input a lot of data to those models soon. And they'll just throw all of the data at the models and then ask them KPIs and how many people are buying shoes at my web shop, whatever. Um, and a lot of the time, those answers are probably going to be pretty good. And a lot of the, some of the time, some of those answers are going to be catastrophically wrong. Um, yeah, but it's, it's the same uh, low code and Excel discussion, I guess. Yeah. So, so. Based on that, I guess it all boils down to the company's risk appetite as well, because it is something that is not necessarily deterministic in the way it's interpreted. And I guess the more it matures, the better it gets. But I think at the moment that there is quite a quite a bit of way to go before companies will 100% trust these tools. And of course, uh, Microsoft being one of the main investors in, in ChatGPT, they've already, or OpenAI, they've already been booked are pre-baked into a couple of their products ranging from their CRM solutions so you can easily generate marketing text and uh, and power bi as well with the same as you mentioned Vignesh. you can describe what you ex- measure you're trying to build and then you'll get the dax query out in the other end so yeah i think to be everywhere okay so finally we will move on to morton's question and your question is have data platforms become bloated so what what do you mean by this by this, Morton? Yeah, so that's uh, not entirely clear to myself either. So that's why I'm hoping for for you guys to help me out. Um, and so I'm saying that because this question is really crystal clear in my head. Um, but I'll try to explain what I'm what where I'm coming from. Um, so essentially, ten fifteen years ago, we had like a monolithic data platform design. People would have companies would have a data warehouse. They would buy an on-premise SQL server and they would do some data modeling, put the data on the SQL server in some sort of batch nightly fashion. Um, and then maybe they would put some OLAP cubes on top. Um, there's probably other architectures as well, um, but that it's my impression that that was like the predominant one. And then something happened and today uh, we have a lot of technologies and we have a lot of architectures to choose from, you can say, um, but we both have to choose from them, um, but we also have to be sure not to be confused by them, because I think the complexity of that space is just enormous right now. It's enormous even for me, who is working in the field, and I think for people who are not working in the field, or maybe just one step removed from the technical side, so management, for them, it's just absolute gibberish, the terminology we throw at them. As I might say, they don't actually need to know uh, the terminology, but some of the terms like data mesh and data fabric, those go, they concern the organization more than the actu- actual technical aspects. And so when you get to the organizational level, then you do not need to talk to managers about it. And they do need to understand it in order to navigate, especially when you're a big enterprise. And so 
now I'm just starting to talk and I could probably continue, but I hope you're getting sort of where I'm coming from. It feels like going from this monolithic design to uh, this multitude of offerings we have today, that if we're actually, if we're just solving the same problem, which is moving data from A to B for analytical purposes, um, where does this complexity come from? And is it warranted? Do we get a value out of having so much complexity in the solution space? I guess is the question. So I will start by saying, I don't think data platforms are such as become bloated, but I think in the last couple of years, the expectations to what the data platform solve has exploded because there's a lot more expectation to what we expect to solve with our data platforms today than there was 10 years ago. So in that way, Yes, the, the the expectations have been bloated, but not the data platforms as such, as I see it at least. And so so that would be, so there's something like, there's the governance and lineage and data quality. So that's at least three aspects that are probably new-ish compared to 10 years ago. Are, are there other like aspects you think, Mark, that we solve now that we didn't before? So the, the entire area of AI is relatively new and AI is typically considered part of your data platform. It's not, of course, the only part of it, but it is in some way a part. So this entire notion that this can this is the magical tool that you throw whatever garbage data you have at and, and then you get gold, that's not going to be solved that way, to be honest, or at least most likely. Yeah, so in this, in this, uh, so with this notion or definition, the analytics, the compute resources for analytical purposes is also part of the data platform. So I guess the, the main, the canonical example would be Databricks, which is both like a data warehouse sorting for storing data and also for actual and analysts to go and, and look at the data. Yeah, but also all of the transformation that you need to prepare your data to actually be useful in your model, that mm-hmm. is part of be happening in a data platform that should not have be handled in whatever computer you're using to execute your model on. But you could say back in the day with the monolithic data warehouse design, you also had a lot of transformations concerning the, the business rules. Certainly. Mm. But you still have a change in scope of who wants to use it, what do they want to use it for, how many users should actually be able to work with it. Sure, absolutely. And I think if you just take the old school data warehouse requirements, expectations, and apply them to a modern data platform, you can solve those with a, an an easier platform and a more agile platform and a, a platform that you can test your transformations and deliver value a lot faster. Just as long as you combine, you do take the good stuff from Data Lake and combine with the, the best from the data warehouse approach and do your yeah Data Lake House and Databricks, for instance, or in Synapse if it's in Microsoft World. A concrete example is um, back in the days, if you had to add an extra field to a dimension, and then you had to add it multiple places in your transformation layer. You had to update your schemas and your, if maybe it was loaded initially, but still in your staging and your load or delivery layer and stuff like that. But right now you can just, it's a matter of uh, adding it one place in our, we have a metadata driven lightweight approach in one type of data platform and you can just never have a problem with just dropping your production database for instance because there's no data it's just a schema or a virtual layer so it's and the whole best practice from from CICD that comes from old school or classic development has just improved the the or reduced significantly the, the time to value in those cases yeah and so now I'm tipping my hand and letting you know my opinion as well. I think, uh, Jacob, when you mentioned CICD pipelines, 
I think one thing that the monolithic data warehouse didn't do so well was software engineering best practices. And one of those is CICD pipelines. And it feels like sometimes that data engineering as a field, instead of taking the best from software engineering and progressing, it's instead taken some parts of data science and progressed. Uh, and again, my the best example of this, I think, is this Databricks, which sort of, it, it, it solved the problem of not having enough compute on your machine, essentially, by making using Spark, which is distributed. Um, and then the way you interface, the way you interface with Databricks is via notebooks, which is at least at the beginning, which is really the opposite direction of good software engineering practices that you wanted to move. Um, so, and that's sort of the way the field is moving or has moved the past five or 10 years, I think, where really to me, what I've seen in a lot of businesses, what they really need is a robust way to encode business logic in their uh, source application data. And that's and that's not really the way the field has moved. Um, yeah, I think that's a very good point. And that's where we've at Delegate, for instance, been very privileged because we are, we are inheriting the, uh, the best practice from our Azure colleagues that are, yeah, hardcore developers. And so when we do Databricks offerings three years ago, we did it in, in notebooks. Right now we do it only in code uh, and with testable uh, components uh, and a framework, public source framework called ATC platform. Um, so yeah, we, we've been there and just because we're, we've been so lucky to be in a house that has a lot of software developers, we've in a, in, yeah, joined the uh, venture deliverables. We've improved a lot on on, on, the, um, on the maturity level on that part. And that, that we've taken, of course, as well down to our low code slash SQL based uh, variants as well. So yeah, see where you're coming from, but it can be better. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like kind of hear you all. And I have like two part answer here or two part thoughts that the first one is that can you soft the data landscape as such hasn't become bloated. It's just, there has been a, a lot of formalization of different requirements into services and tools, right? Data lineage was was an idea. Yes, you want to track where your source data comes from and how it gets transformed and so on. And that was formalized as more data came into being and you just were overwhelmed with the data and you you had these business logic, which you said, Martin, that business rules that you need to have the latest and greatest number available and the ability to track where it went wrong. All of those rules kind of getting formalized created these tools. That's that's how I understand it, looking back at the timeline of how data landscape, the famous data landscape map from 2019 compares to how it compares in 2023, right? Uh, so that's how I'm thinking. And the second part is that the underlying compute infrastructure and the concepts of off those compute infrastructure hasn't changed so much in the last 10 years. It's just there have been, it's becoming more widespread and easier to use as, as these tools come into uh, life and you, you're able to utilize them. Um, so it's, it's, it's that part where you, you have all of this new tools, which enable you to compute certain things in certain ways and also formalization of the different rules over the last few years. Mark, did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, it's just circling a bit back to this entire notion of the the challenge with the the Databricks suite and, and the notebooks. But I, I think it actually boils down to this, who is doing your data platform? Because people tend to do what's easy for them to do. And 
at least most data scientists I have met in my life, and that's not any, any kind of disrespect to you, Morten, but tend to like working in notebooks. A lot of software developers like to work in their Visual Studio code or whatever other IDE. And at least from what I have seen in Cornfos is that you get quite different Databricks versions if you're asking a, a, a notebook-oriented person to write it compared to a, a software engineer. So what we have seen was that, that we at the same time had people writing notebooks and people writing it in directly in Scala in a VS Code environment than deploying it through Git. So that might be also uh, a, a thing to think into how you choose your platform in general. Would you want to, to limit what people can do? Or do you want to have it a, a bit more open so that a, a larger state of people can actually work efficiently? In it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, obviously there's a lot of ways to work with Databricks. And I think especially recently, they've really upgraded the way that you can do proper software engineering practices on Databricks, which I, I wholeheartedly welcome, I would say. Um, but for a long time, at least coming from the data science side, the natural entry point to Databricks was, uh, was the notebook. Um, and I completely agree, Mark, that most data scientists, they pop open a notebook and, and start coding and software engineers are a little different. Um, I think, I think, I think you need to be careful with the notebook format. So I'm not, I would say I'm not a typical data scientist. Um, but each have their own advantages, obviously. Yeah, uh, my guess would be that the gold, golden golden egg is lying somewhere in between because, yeah, as you say, notebooks are good for some things, full-fledged software programs are uh, good for another set of things. So maybe meet somewhere in the middle to have a solution engineer and a data engineer and a data scientist look into what is the correct approach based on our problem and then do that. Okay, great. Any other final thoughts on today's topic then from anyone? Nope. All good. Okay, great. So we'll leave it there for today. So I just want to take this opportunity to thank you all, Mark, Jakob, Vignesh and Morton, for providing some great insights into our topic today. Hopefully everyone can take something away from today's discussion, including our listeners. Thank you all for listening in. And if you'd like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Abolition Exchange Podcast. See you next time.